Uh, first off, just want to thank everybody for joining us today. And in this journey, um, which is six weeks long, um, a period of 40 days, excluding Sundays, that leads us to Easter. We're in this season of preparation, preparing our hearts, our minds, and ourselves for uh, the resurrection. And um, so today, um, I want to start off today with a little bit of a story, a story from um, my life and an experience of a number of years ago, actually. It's been when I was invited to attend a dinner event. Um, I was new to ministry and starting out in, in church service. And I was invited to this dinner event by a couple of friends of mine in the church, and it was with a whole group of people. There were maybe like 50 people or so. It was kind of like a dinner party. They reserved this room at this restaurant, and it was around this certain ministry that they were involved in. I remember going to this event, and, and I knew some of the people there, but I didn't know a whole lot of the others. So I'm like, great, this is like a networking opportunity too, and get to meet some new friends and that kind of thing. And we gathered around this, this big table for dinner. Uh, it was, like I said, this kind of like banquet kind of hall facility, but there's like a huge, huge table and everybody's sitting there talking and we're enjoying a great dinner and the people get up and they're sharing about the ministry and, and what goes on with them. And I was really interested. And then of course, uh, they finish and people are just kind of talking around tables at that point and desserts being passed around. And there was this one person this one person who was sitting kind of catty corner to me, diagonal around that table, and he was sitting around some other strangers. I didn't know this person. And um, he was a rather, I would say, outspoken person. I don't know if you've ever attended a dinner gathering with someone like that. I'm a very outspoken and, um, dare I say, political and um, divisive kind of person as he was conversing around this table. And mind you, once again, this, this gathering, this dinner was really for uh, this ministry and this kind of benefit and, and learning more about it. But this person started to go off. I think we have a preacher over here, by the way. <laughs> we love you, little Whalen. He's good. He's good. We love kids here. Um, but, but he was going off like about something that had nothing to do with anything that was being discussed. And so this guy just starts like talking and he shares like all of his very like, like deep personal beliefs about things and, and some very troublesome things. And then um, we're all kind of sitting there like nobody really like knew what to do at this point. And, and then he kind of wants to, I guess he wanted to lighten the mood. And what he did was he said a joke that was overtly racist. Like, like no question at all, like, you know, did he really mean it or whatever. He like interjected a joke that was like overtly racist and he starts laughing. And, and not only did us around the table hear this, but there were servers coming in and out, serving us and pouring drinks and whatnot. And they also heard the joke and I saw the one waitress, like the, her look on her face, she was like, oh my goodness. And I remember sitting there and I did not know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I sat there and what I did was I like looked at my shoes, you know, kind of, maybe you've done this before. You're like, what do I, I don't know. I, I kind of waited for the moment to pass. I just froze. I froze just sitting there in this very, very uncomfortable moment that this man was just kind of going off about some very, very wrong things. And what I did 
was I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like that when something happens and you feel like, you know, you ought to say something or do something or call them out or I don't know, just in some gracious way kind of shut down conversation, but instead you just froze. That you had ideas in your head, but you just, your body just froze and nothing came out of your mouth. And, and what happened was I felt bad not for what I did, but for what I failed to do. I left that meal feeling bad about what I, not what I did, but what I had failed to do in that moment. And so today we're continuing our series, Eyewitness, and we're looking at the stories uh, around Jesus' death on the cross and uh, in this Lenten season through basically the eyes of those who were there. Those who knew Jesus, met Jesus, saw Jesus face to face. These are the eyewitnesses. And last week we started off our our journey together looking at two of Jesus' disciples. We looked at Peter and Judas. And we talked about how both of them, both of them made mistakes betraying Jesus. But of course they had a very different response to their mistake. Well, today we're moving along to the story that that most people, most people see as the villain, if there is one, in Jesus' death. So so just let me pause here for a second. Speaking of villains, do you have a favorite fictional villain? Are there any villains that you especially love to hate in some regards? Um, We can put a couple pictures up on the screen. These are a couple that came to mind. Any, any Star Wars people, yeah, Darth Vader, you just have like that breathing through that mask, but you love to hate him, right? And, and then you have, who's the one next to him on the, the upper, the, the Wicked Witch of the West, right? She's terrifying. Maybe you grew up and you had nightmares, or the Flying Monkeys, right? Maybe they're, the, maybe they're more the villain. Um, and then below her is who? Captain Hook, right? And there's like the real, or the, the real life Hook movie that came out like, what was that, the 90s or so too, one of my favorites. Um, And then a more modern example is my friend Gru, yes, from the Minions and all those stories. Got to watch the the latest Minions movie on Last Plane Ride. Very, very funny. Um, But, you know, we, we tend to have like favorite villains, people that we love to hate and that kind of thing. And the thing is, in the story of Jesus, We usually, if we have to characterize a villain, maybe you choose Judas, I don't know, but usually we characterize the villain of the story as a man named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. That's who we're going to look at today. And chances are, you've heard of him. You've heard of him. And maybe looking back, maybe, maybe a long time ago, you grew up in a church that as part of your worship time together, you recited maybe a creed. Have you heard of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the first few centuries of Christianity? And Pilate is made super famous in these creeds because there's a line that says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Maybe you remember reciting that over and over, and it's in there. But, but the thing is, we know that villains, whether they're fictional or real, we all know that villains and heroes both have an origin story don't they? Villains and heroes, and sometimes it's hard, you can't differentiate by someone's origin story about how they grew up and where they came from, about what their life choices would be or where they would head. And just want to look at Pilate just for a couple minutes here. His name is very, very interesting. 
His name is very fascinating. And this is in your notes, too, if you're following along in your worship guide. Um, legend or tradition has it that Pilate's first name, do you know what it was? It wasn't Pontius. It was Marcus. Marcus. Marcus was his first name. And then his last name had the two words, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius most likely indicates that he came from the clan of Ponti, which lived in kind of the area of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor is what we would call it. But the, the second part, the second part of his last name, Pilate, Pilot, we think of like pilot, like like flying. They have a steering, they have a steering wheel, right? When they're flying, I have never flown before, apparently. But but we usually think of like an airplane pilot, right? That has nothing to do with this. But pilot comes from the Latin word pilatus, pilatus, which has two possible meanings. The first meaning means and refers to that that his family or he was good with a javelin. Pilatus, that he was a javelin thrower and probably a very good one. But there's a second possible meaning to his last name. The Pilatus was actually the cap or a badge of a manumitted slave, of a slave, someone who has been free. So this indicates that if that's true, if that's what part of his last name means, then this indicates, get this, that Pontius Pilate was a freed man, that he had been a slave, or he was a descendant of a slave. Interesting, right? Very, very interesting. And, and Pontius Pilate, he was made the Roman governor of this region of Judea in Israel. During the time of Jesus' ministry and death, this is a map that kind of shows his, this region that he was in charge of. So he was pretty high in power and authority. And, and being a Roman governor, a little bit different than our governorship today, uh, it meant basically that he represented the emperor back in Rome. That in this land, he represented the emperor. And his responsibility was to keep peace. His responsibility above anything else was to keep peace in the empire, to keep things flowing in the territory that Rome had conquered decades before. And what's interesting about Pilate, too, is that we have historical records about him that are outside the Bible. So this is not made up. We have guys by the name of Josephus, maybe you've heard of him in the Roman historian Tacitus, outside the Bible, who, who write about Pontius Pilate. Um, we have only a couple artifacts that have survived that mention Pontius Pilate. As one is several coins, and another is what's called the Pilate Stone. The Pilate Stone, and I actually got to see this. This is in Caesarea, um, and it's found right outside of Caesarea, which had actually become Pilate's headquarters around 6 A.D. And it's a stone that has an inscription on it that talks about Pontius Pilate. See, when Jesus was arrested. And the guards took him away. The first place that they took him was immediately to the governor Pontius Pilate. His significance in Jesus' story, outside of the historical story. And so just a minute, in just a minute, I want to read to you the story. And, and the thing is, in this story, it's so easy to see him as the bad guy, as the villain, that's how we characterize him. He's the villain of the story. But what I want you to do, as I read the story, I want you to pay attention to what is going on in Pilate. 
What is going on in him? What do you sense? What do you see? So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 27, uh, verses 1 to 2. And then 11 to 24, the reason why we're skipping off the middle section there is because we read that last week. That's part of Judas's story. Um, So Matthew tells us, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. So fast forward a little. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted, At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. When he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man. For today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Hmm, Interesting. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, so then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? All of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So, so, Let's just pause here. What is the moral of the story? Listen to your wife. (laughs) Amen to that. But, um, But anyway, but think for a second. Think for a second. What do you notice? What do you notice about Pilate? What do you notice about Pilate? About what he's going on inside him? We're going to visit Barabbas next week, by the way. That's our person, just to give you a little heads up on that. But, but let me set the context for you here. So first off, Pilate is the governor. He's in charge of overseeing the peace in the land. And it's Passover in Jerusalem. So just to give you a picture of what Passover in Jerusalem is like, especially at that time, it's like the Super Bowl for the Jews, You have everybody that's not from there who is there, probably about three times the population. So the city is swollen with outsiders, people from all different places and backgrounds and that kind of thing, all getting ready for Passover holiday. And like I just said, Pilate's role in the midst of that is to do what? Keep the peace. Think about that. Keep the peace. And he's an outsider, by the way. He's an outsider. He's a Roman. So he's coming in, and this is not his home turf at all. And his job is to oversee, think about this, the revolutionaries who are present, 
the mob who is present, the Pharisees who are present, the people who want Jesus dead, the people who want Jesus to lead an armed revolt. The, the situation you can imagine is getting really, really, really tense. And so when the chief priests arrest Jesus and when they bring him to Pilate, what follows is kind of like a ping pong game or an arcade game. See, the priests, you hear in the story, the priests first, they don't want to be responsible for Jesus. So what do they do? They take him to Pilate. And then Pilate looks at Jesus and is like, what do you do? Like, I don't know. What, what, like, you're not guilty. And one gospel, another gospel says that from there, he's handed to Herod and then back from him. And so, but we're told that Pilate, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to do. And then what does he do? He asks the people to decide, which was the custom. It goes back and forth, back and forth, what to do. Nobody wanted to be responsible for what would happen to Jesus. I have to say, we can kind of see the way that Pilate felt stuck. On one hand, Pilate doesn't want to riot. He doesn't want to riot before his hand. You know, that's going to make him look bad, by the way, to all of his bosses. Uh, he's responsible to keep the peace. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to put an innocent man to death either. It's this rock in a hard place. You know, think about it. Even his wife chimes in and is like, I have nothing to do with him. You can imagine he's thinking through that too. What does this mean? And there's all these tensions and he doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? He freezes. He does nothing. And, and most of us are probably familiar with the usual human stress response, aren't we? You know, whether it's a lion that's stalking you or somebody cusses you out. We have this stress response, right? This kind of same stress response that, that happens. And some of us, we usually think of it just fight or flight, but it's actually four different things. Some people say six. But we have the fight response. You know, I'm gonna, they're wrong. I'm right. I'm going to go attack. Flight, let me get out of there or avoid the conversation or that kind of thing. But there's also these two other responses that we have. Freeze and fawn. And, and fawn is basically like a pleasing attitude, like trying to make nice nice with the person or the, the thing that's, that's opposing you. And then there's that freeze, the doing nothing, the stopping, the not doing anything, not running, not fighting, just doing absolutely nothing. And essentially, essentially, Pilate is famous not for what he did, but for what he failed to do. Have you ever heard the phrase, I, I wash my hands of the situation? Maybe you've said that before. This is where it comes from, by the way. It comes from this scripture and this account and what Pilate did. It means I see something bad coming, and I want you to know that I'm not responsible. I wasn't involved. It's not my fault. Like, I wasn't a part of it. And this is what the story says about Pilate. His mistake is not what he did, but what he failed to do. And it's so easy for us to make him out to be a villain, a bad guy. But as I was reading the scripture and over and over, I have to say I sympathize with him. There's been many times when something happened, like at that dinner party, and yet in the moment I froze and I did nothing. See, Pilate, Pilate felt like there was nothing he could do. The truth was, there was just nothing attractive for him to do. Have you ever been there? Have you ever faced that? 
When doing nothing is the absolute safest thing for you to do, I mean, maybe in a work or a social situation, and something's happening, and, and so you do nothing. You don't say anything. Or, or you see a need. You see a need. And, and what do you do? You assume somebody else is going to take care of that need. Or somebody else is going to sign up. Or somebody else is going to take care of them. Or, and, and you just distance yourself. Like, don't get involved. Like, it's just safe and comfy over here. I don't want to get mess on me, right? Or you're, maybe, maybe you've been presented with an opportunity to use gifts and graces that God has given you, but you choose to stay safe. And you choose to do absolutely nothing with them. See, in all different ways, we often choose to freeze. We know that nothing is not the best option, but it's the most attractive option, and it's also the safest. See, in verse 24, Matthew tells us, so this is a sticky verse, when Pilate saw that he could do nothing. He saw he could do nothing. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever thought that? I could do nothing. I can't do anything. I can't. I, I, I just can't. The thing is, that statement is never true. The statement is never true. The reality is, Pilate, he was governor. He was the most powerful person in the province. He commanded soldiers at his left and right hand. If he told them to turn, they turned. If he told them to go, they go. The truth is, Pilate could have done any number of things. He could have done anything he wanted. And the overtones in the story tell us he knew what the right thing to do was. His wife knew what the right thing to do was, but he was just too scared to do it. See, in the church, there's a name for this. There's a name for this. And maybe you uh, grew up and took Sunday school classes or whatever, um, talking about different kinds of sins. This is what is called in the church. This is like big C church, like worldwide church, called a sin of omission. Have you ever heard about that? Heard that? There's what's called a sin of commission, which is something you do wrong, a way, an act that you commit, something that you do that's wrong. But a sin of omission is a failure to do right. In Nazi Germany, this took place, sins of omission, where people stood by and did nothing as their neighbors were taken away. And um, I, while I was in Israel, I got to visit one of um, a Holocaust museum there, which is very, very powerful. Um, if you haven't gone to the one in D.C., please do that. If you ever make it to Israel, then please go and visit there. And I remember hearing the stories of um, people who had Jewish neighbors and just watched their neighbors just being trucked off and taken to camps. And then, I get this, later in the story, those that survived the concentration camps, when they were freed and they went home, they found that their neighbors had moved into their houses their neighbors moved in their houses and they're like, you know, coming back from the concentration camp and walking in the door and they see people living in their house and, the, and their neighbors who were there the whole time who did absolutely nothing are like, what? I thought you were dead. Like, people did that. Like, this is, this is true history. Like, these people did nothing and they just assumed that they're dead and they moved into their house. Like, it seems so crazy. But you think about that. God doesn't call us not ju just not to do wrong. God calls us to be people working for what is right. Let me finish what happened in my dinner story. Um, so that night, 
I remember, remember I just froze there, didn't say anything. Well, the dinner continued and eventually wrapped up and the hosts that were sitting all the way at the far end and hadn't heard the, the racist joke and the comments, um, they wrapped things up for the night and people are getting up to leave. And I just had like this sinking feeling in my heart. Like, I don't remember anything that they had talked about at that meal. But um, what I did, I saw that waitress over in the corner, and she was, like, getting some orders ready or something. And I went up to her, and I said, hey, look, I know you were there when this person made this joke and this comment, and I know, I I just want to apologize. I want to apologize for not doing anything. And her response was, hey, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. And, and thinking about that, her response to me, in one way it was right. Like, it was that guy. It was that guy who did the wrong. I wasn't responsible for his racism. But in another sense, it was my fault. I failed to do what was right. I was wrong not for what I did, but what for I failed to do. So therefore, I contributed to it. I bore responsibility for her reaction and, and what had taken place. And after I left that night, I thought about not just that occurrence, but about all the different times that things like that take place. I think God sometimes allows opportunities around us for us to resist evil and oppression. He allows those opportunities. Opportunities to do as we promise in our baptismal vows. Every person who is baptized takes these baptismal vows that they promise that they will be part of resisting evil and oppression in the world. And I think God desires that we would be truth tellers, that we would give words of hope and light and not contribute to hate and to lies. Uh, Once again, when I was starting out in ministry, I had a great mentor, continues to be a mentor and um, there was an occasion that I had an opportunity to preach. It was one of my first times preaching, and it was in this like uh, mixed denominational um, um, opportunity. There were different churches there and different people, and I had an opportunity to bring like a devotion or a message. And so I got up, and I was really like scared and anxious. I remember like sharing that and and being a part of that service. And I prayed at the end and, and sat down. And people, as I could tell, were like smiling and like nodding and that kind of thing. So it made me feel good. And I remember like after that thing was over, we're getting ready to leave. My mentor was there with me. And um, a guy comes up and taps him on the shoulder and tells him, you let her preach. It's like, don't you know what the Bible says about like women preachers and that kind of thing? And the thing is, I remember watching it. Like, it made me very uncomfortable, of course. And I'm, like, sitting there. I'm, like, can we just leave and just, like, get out of here? Like, not deal with this type of thing. And I remember what my mentor did. Once again, a man, mind you, stood and looked that gentleman in the eye. He says, yes, yes, I do. And that's why I have her up here. And I just remember, like, him saying that and me watching that. Just, it, it, it changed me. Like, like it, somebody that said something and did something, and once again, not in a, like a, a way that was condescending, but he was humble about it, and he approached, the, as this gentleman came to him, he said something. He did something. And that stuck with me for a long time. I have great respect for someone that does something like that when someone is ostracized for whatever reason. And so way too often we justify our inaction. We justify it because we're scared, we're embarrassed, and we freeze. 
And I wonder, though, looking at Pilate's story, I wonder what would have happened had Pilate done something. Of course, God used and God continues to use evil and sin to bring about hope and resurrection. That's God. That's God's work. He does that. He flips it on its head and brings, even through the cross, the worst torture there is, he brought about hope and resurrection. Like only God can do that. But I wonder how many things would be different if those who follow Christ wouldn't choose to live by the sword or just stand by, but would choose to serve and protect the weak and to stand with the oppressed. In the end, I think Pilate's story is a challenge to us. A challenge first, recognizing first that we need to remember that we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Ironically, it's Pilate who's found guilty, not Jesus in this story. And like last week, we have to choose to confess that, our mistakes, our sins, and repent of it to turn around and go in a different direction. But the second thing here is, the good news is, there's always a chance to do right. There's always a chance to do right. Your chances are not over. Because if you ask the question, what happened to Pilate? What happened to Pilate after Jesus' trial, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and even the resurrection? Well, in 1054 AD, fast forward about a thousand years, um, there's, there was a split between the Western and the Eastern church. And that, this might unpack some things for you. The, the Western church tends to be those of us in the West part, you know, the Western hemisphere. And the East tends to be in the Eastern hemisphere, more like things like the Greek Orthodox church, those types of churches that are associated with the Eastern church. And it's interesting because when it comes to Pilate's story and what happened to him, the Western church depicts Pilate as a villain. And this is for good reason. Uh, Josephus, a historian, um, he records how Pilate's buddy, Sejanus, who was kind of his, his co-pilot, mind you, haha, <laughs> that's a joke, his, his co-pilot, um, he, he was murdered. He was murdered. He helped him make decisions. And so he, without him, uh, Pilate makes a major error. And he, what he does is he suppresses this small like uprising in Samaria that takes place. And for, uh, uh, for suppressing that, he's fired from his job as governor. And the story goes that later he took his own life. The Greeks report saying, thus divine vengeance, as it seems, was not long in overtaking him. So the Greeks believe that the execution of Jesus was wrong as well. Well, that's the Western church take. The Eastern church tradition says something very, very different. Actually, the opposite. And this is, again, this is not in the Bible. This is all tradition. So that the Eastern church says, Pilate repented after his situation. He and his wife came to faith in Jesus after the resurrection. And for that faith, they were later executed. And so in the Eastern church tradition, especially the Ethiopian church, Pilate and his wife are revered as saints. They're worshiped as saints. Imagine that, Saint Pilate. And so what's the truth here? What's the true story? We have no idea. Like there's things that are made up and all. But I think what this tells us is that every day is an opportunity to do it differently, to do the right thing, to say something, to do something. There is always an opportunity. It's believable. Maybe Pilate did turn around. Maybe he did come to Christ and come to faith. Maybe that did take place. Like, it's not out of the realm of possibility. 
But when we're presented with an opportunity, it's an opportunity to say something, to do something, instead of freezing and trying to remain safe. And my prayer for you, my prayer for us, is that when we are presented with that opportunity, that we would have the courage with humility and curiosity, not just to avoid doing what's wrong, but to do the thing that's right. And so um, I want to close this message together with a prayer. Um, And it's a prayer that dates back to 1552. It's a prayer that um, our buddy uh, John Wesley, who our roots in the Church of the Nazarene and uh, through the Methodist Church and the movement go back to, is a prayer that he um, would have said. Um, It's a prayer called the General Confession from the Book of Common Prayer. And we're going to put the words on the screen here um, that we would not just say these words, but as we read them, that we would live into them. So we're going to put that up here. So would you share this with me um, if you choose? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And as we approach the table today, that spirit of humility and grace and knowing that every day is an opportunity to do right, no matter how many wrongs have taken place no matter how many times that you've chosen to do nothing, to be silent, to walk away, that you are a part of the story that God wants to write.